Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we Welcome in, everybody. Episode 43 of the podcast in Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is... Sunday, October 17th, 2021, NES, you heard correctly, I just dropped an episode of the Aaron Torres pod on Sunday, I usually wait until Monday to drop the episode, but with the news, the shocking news that Coach O is officially out as LSU's head coach, it feels like there is no time to wait, there is so much to react to on a Sunday like today, we are going to talk about Coach O. We are going to talk about candidates, even though I've done an incredible job already of talking about candidates on this show. We are going to then transition to the rest of the weekend. Tennessee, the madness at Neyland Stadium. I will give what I think is a different perspective on Tennessee than you have heard a lot of places. No, I'm not going to defend what happened, but I do think there's some context that the media is conveniently leaving out when having this conversation. Uh, And then from there, we'll wrap on the rest of the college football weekend. We will talk a little bit about, uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit about Georgia's dominating win over Kentucky. We will talk a little bit about Caleb Williams emerging at Oklahoma, and we will talk about the rest of the week seven slate. With that said, let's get to the topic of the day, and we all know what it is. The topic of the day, Coach O is officially out at LSU, sort of. Okay, so let's backtrack a little bit, and it's really funny because if you listen to last Monday's episode, I talked about it on this show. I said point blank. I said I actually waited last Sunday to record an episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, assuming that Coach O was going to be let go after that Kentucky game. He survived the week. It felt weird. They actually beat Florida on Saturday. By the way, we will talk about Dan Mullen as well because there's something going on with Dan Mullen that needs to be discussed here. Um, But he survived Saturday, and we think, okay, Is Coach O going to do it again? Is the magic going to come back? He got the LSU job by rallying LSU when the season was lost. That's how he got the LSU job. That's how he almost got the USC job. Is he going to do it again to keep his job going forward? And the answer is no. 
on Sunday we get word that he and or he or his representation has been negotiating with LSU for a week and that essentially he will be allowed to coach out the season at LSU but he will be not be back for the 2022 season that news of course came from Ross Dellinger actually been on this show friend of the Aaron Torres podcast Ross Dellinger was the first one with it I will read you verbatim what Ross Dellinger tweeted about the Edwards round situation He said, LSU and Ed Orgeron have reached a separation agreement. He will not return in 2022, but is expected to complete this season, sources tell Sports Illustrated. Negotiations began last week before the Florida win. It's unprecedented in the sport, coach and school divorcing 21 months after winning it all. So Ross Dellinger kind of sums it up there. That is the ethos. That is the essence of what you need to know. Um, But Coach O is out. He's been working on a separation with the school. He will be paid a lot of money to not be the head coach. He will be allowed to complete the season. But after this, he is out at LSU, and they can begin the coaching search for the next head coach. We will get to candidates in a minute. Before we do, you know, let me just say what I've been saying on this show for the last few weeks. Uh, you know, we could put a bow on this. You know, it'll be the last time maybe we talk about Coach O for a while. But, you know, this is something that had to happen. I've said it a million times, I don't root against people, I don't root for people to lose their jobs, but my policy has always been this. We have a lot of media members that say, I don't talk about another man's job. Well, if you're not doing your job, I gotta talk about it, and that is what is going on with Coach O, and this is what has happened at LSU. Yes, he won a national championship in 2019, as Ross Dellinger said, less than 21 months ago. Um, But pretty much everything that has happened since has been a disaster. His play caller, Joe Brady, left for the NFL like two days after the national championship, is now coaching with the Carolina Panthers. Dave Aranda, his defensive coordinator, took over as the Baylor head coach. Ironically, when Matt Rule left Baylor for the Carolina Panthers, Matt Rule hires Joe Brady. Um, And so you lose your top two coordinators. You lose a ton of talent off that team. And then everything that could go wrong since then has. The coordinator hires have not worked out. Last year, you have Bo Pelini in as the defensive coordinator. It is historically one of the worst defenses in the history of college football. Coach O had this offseason to straighten things out. It appears as though his coordinator hires have not worked this year. There are injuries across the board. I don't want to say the team has quit on them because they just won, but ultimately, since that national championship, Coach O is 9-8 overall. And at the end of the day, you can't be 9-8 over a a season-and-a-half stretch at LSU. Uh, You just simply can't be. Um, you know, you go, you go and look at the current situation. It is not just about, by the way, the wins and losses. It is also worth noting, as I've said many times, who they've lost to and how it's gone down. It's one thing to lose to Nick Saban. It's one thing to occasionally lose to Florida, although Coach O has actually been great against Florida. Uh, and it's quite another thing to lose to, to some of the teams that LSU has. Last year, they got punked by Mississippi State. Mike Leach's first game, they threw the ball up and down the field against them. LSU looked like they didn't know the air raid was coming. This year, they open the season, they get punked by UCLA, who has not been great since that game. They get punked by Kentucky last week. We know how good Kentucky is, but when you're LSU, you are never supposed to lose to a school like Kentucky, and certainly not in the fashion that they did. And so I always assumed that Coach O would be gone. I thought it was going to be last Sunday. Instead, it is this Sunday, and now it's time to look ahead. As we get to the candidates, let me say this, though. I think I've actually done an incredible job already of talking about what could potentially happen at LSU. About three weeks ago, I talked about who the candidates would be when this job opened. That was after the Auburn game. This past week, I talked about which job is better, USC or LSU, as it appears as though many of the same candidates will overlap. 
on last episode on Friday, I talked about Mark Stoop specifically. Would he ever leave Kentucky for a school like LSU? So if you missed any of that, I encourage you to go back. All the episodes and all the segments are clipped off on my YouTube page. If you search Aaron Torres YouTube, you are going to find plenty of coverage if you missed any of these shows. But with that said, let's get to the candidates at LSU. And as we do that, let me very simply say this. Um, When I look at, at this LSU job, there are a couple things that you need to know about LSU. First of all, LSU, since the last time this job opened and Coach O was hired, has a new AD. I have talked about this guy before, but this context matters in this story. Their AD is a guy named Scott Woodward. Scott Woodward is by believed by many to be the most aggressive AD in all of college sports. I've said it many times. He runs an athletic department the way a fan does. You know how when you're when your favorite school, when their coaching job opens up, you get a list of crazy you go to the message board and there's a list of crazy candidates and you're like, "I uh, know uh, Pete Carroll is not coming back to coach Auburn, okay? Like, like you just get this, this this crazy list of candidates. You don't know what's realistic. You don't know what's not. Um, but Scott Woodward operates that way. He does not care about money. He does not care about public backlash. He cares about getting the best candidate for his coaching jobs in college sports, and he cares about winning championships. I actually, in many ways, give him credit. Um, you know, I think there's some kind of PR stuff that comes with paying a coach a lot of money. It looks bad. How do you pay a guy this much money when the players don't get it? He doesn't care. He knows who he works for, and it's ultimately the fans, and his only goal is to win championships. In terms of his resume, I'll try to be brief, but these are some of the hires that he has made. He was the guy that convinced Chris Peterson, longtime Boise coach, won a million games at Boise. Every year the conversation was, when is Chris Peterson leaving Boise? Scott Peterson, or Scott, Scott Peterson, uh, not Scott Peterson, Scott Woodward was the guy that got Chris Peterson to leave Boise from Washington when Scott, uh, when Scott Woodward was the head coach there. Scott Woodward is the guy that hired Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. Remember, Jimbo Fisher won a national championship at Florida State. He's never going to leave Florida State. Uh, Scott Woodward said, here's $75 million guaranteed over 10 years. Come to Texas A&M. Jimbo Fisher was on the next plane saying, gig him an hour later. Uh, Buzz Williams, the uh, Texas A&M basketball coach. It has not worked out. I heard six months before that was done that that was done. Buzz Williams wanted to get back to Texas. Buzz Williams was from Texas. He has a history of changing jobs every three or four years. And Scott Woodward got that deal done in no time. Finally, Scott Woodward gets to LSU this offseason. Who does he hire? Kim Mulkey, three-time national championship winning head coach of the Baylor women's basketball team, gets her to leave and come to LSU. And so there are a lot of ADs that we wish acted this way. There are a lot of ADs that shoot for the stars and say money is of no object. I'll figure out the money. Let's get you signed, sealed, and delivered. And that is what is going on at LSU right now. And so with that said, let's get to the candidates. I've talked about a lot of them within the last few weeks. I do think, by the way, some new names have emerged. Some new names have fallen off a little bit. And so we got to discuss them. I did a full write-up at AaronTorresOnline.com. You can read it there. But let's get into the candidates that I believe are in play at LSU, some more likely than others. The first one, I just said his name. And I know it sounds crazy, but it's Jimbo Fisher. Do I think Jimbo Fisher will be the next head coach at LSU? I do not. But the reasons that it makes sense are the reasons that I just laid out. He was the guy, Scott Woodward, the current LSU AD, was at Texas A&M, 
and he was the guy that convinced Jimbo Fisher to leave Florida State for Texas A&M. Gave him a bunch of money, gave him full autonomy to do whatever the heck he wanted, gave him all the money to build the resources and the facilities and the this and the that. Gave him a ton of money, by the way, to hire an elite coaching staff, including Mike Elko, who had Alabama confused all week last week as the defensive coordinator at Texas A&M. Scott Woodward has a relationship with Jimbo Fisher, obviously has a relationship with the agents, and I do think the phone call is made. Now, I think those of you asking why would Jimbo Fisher ever leave Texas A&M for LSU, I think it's a totally fair thing. I don't think Jimbo Fisher is leaving, one, because before the season, he just got an extension at Texas A&M that made him the second highest paid coach in college football behind only Nick Saban. So one, there's the money factor. LSU can get in a bidding war. They are not topping Texas A&M in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of outbidding Texas A&M for Jimbo Fisher. It is not going to happen. Texas A&M has that oil money. There is 0% chance that when uh, Jimbo Fisher gets, if, if there is a bidding war for Jimbo Fisher, that he will leave Texas A&M for LSU strictly over money. So that's part of it. I think the other thing is he's recruiting his butt off. Texas A&M finished fifth in the college football playoff poll last year. They are trending in the right direction. You look at the rest of their schedule. This is looking like another 9-10 win season. And so the question becomes, why would Jimbo Fisher leave Texas A&M to go and rebuild another program when he spent the last three years doing it at Texas A&M? It doesn't make sense. I don't see it. But what I would also say is there are some compelling reasons for Jimbo Fisher to consider going to LSU. One, LSU at its peak, I think it's a better job than Texas A&M for one simple reason. I said it on last week's show. It's the only power five in that state. They have an insane amount of high school football talent. And if you get LSU rolling, you can win huge. The stat that has come out over the last three, four, five weeks, and it is an important one, the last three coaches that have coached at LSU have won a national championship. Nick Saban, Les Miles, Coach O. Les Miles and Coach O certainly can't be considered uh, coaching savants, but that is how much talent is in that state. And it's also worth noting, by the way, Les Miles not only won a national championship, he won a lot of other games while he was the head coach there and played for another national championship in 2011 where he lost to Alabama. Uh, Coach O had other great seasons outside of the national championship run. And so if all three of the of if the three coaches who have coached there this century have won a national championship, then there is no doubt Jimbo Fisher can as well. I think the other thing that he would at least have to consider, Texas A&M's selling point right now on the recruiting trail, they're the only SEC school in Texas. Well, that's about to change as Texas comes in. If they can possibly get it rolling with Steve Sarkeesian, is it at all possible that maybe, just maybe, uh, Jimbo Fisher looks at Texas A&M and says, you know what, this job isn't exactly what it was when I got here. The competition for players in the state of Texas is going to be tougher. Steve Sarkeesian is starting to make a move. I am going to uh, head over to LSU. Again, I don't think it will happen, but I think he's got to at least take the phone call. I think he's got to at least think about it, as Jimbo Fisher will probably be the first call that Scott Woodward makes. Second call that I think Scott Woodward makes. A guy that had plenty of headlines on Saturday night, our old buddy Lane Kiffin. And I think, you know, a couple things with Lane Kiffin, including one that I hadn't really thought about until recently. So first of all, the the appeal of Lane Kiffin is pretty straightforward. He's young, he has a dynamic offense, and it's pretty simple. Look at what he's doing at Ole Miss. Look at the fact that last year he had no offseason, no spring practice, and they averaged 50 points a game. Well, imagine what he could do with the players at LSU. 
That is the idea. That is the appeal. And with LSU, they haven't really had an offensive identity for the past 20-plus years. With Les Miles, they couldn't pass the ball. This year, they can't run the ball. Uh, obviously, they had the one year with Joe Brady and Joe Burrow that worked out. But Lane Kiffin brings an identity. He brings an offense. He brings excitement to LSU. And he does it. And the idea, again, is if he can do this at Ole Miss, imagine what he could do with the players that he could get at LSU. The other thing that I hadn't really considered, you know, we criticize Lane Kiffin for a lot, and I do think there are still some maturity issues, which I will talk about in a minute when it comes to the Tennessee situation on Saturday night. You know, but I I do think we kind of have to go back and look at what his career has looked like at the college level a little bit differently. Um, You know, one, let's be honest, Tennessee was really good the year that he was there. They beat Steve Spurrier's South Carolina team. They beat Mark Rick's Georgia team. They were trending. They, they, they played Urban Meyer's team really tough in a year that Urban Meyer and, and, and Florida went undefeated in the regular season. They played that team really tough. And even at USC, I think we sit there and say it was this total failure. Let's not forget, he got hit with major, major, major sanctions six months after he got there. They lost 30 scholarships. They weren't allowed to play in bowl games. All of their upperclassmen were allowed to transfer without having to sit out. And so there was no way that anyone could have won at USC the way that, uh, you know, Pete Carroll had done. And when Link, uh, let me backtrack. There was no way that anyone could have won at the expectation level that USC fans expected given what happened to USC during that time because of NCAA sanctions. And I read an article this week where Lane Kiffin talked about it. He's like, man, come on, man. Like, you know, I got there thinking it's going to be one thing. All of a sudden, I'm down 30 players. Uh, My upperclassmen can transfer. We can't go to bowl games. Nobody could have won under that situation. And I think he has been proven correct. He has bounced back. He coached at Bama. He coached at Florida Atlantic. And now he is at Ole Miss. And he has the most exciting offense in college football. And he has a program that we never thought would be playing like this, competing like this. They're 5-1. and one. They're probably maybe the second best team in the SEC West right now. We'll see about Texas A&M. So that is the appeal of Lane Kiffin. And that is why LSU would go after him. He's young. He's only 46. He could be there 15 years if he gets it right. He's a dynamic recruiter. He has a dynamic offense. And you put him with all of those players that LSU can get, there's a really good chance that that is a really good football team for a really long time. The only downside with with Lane Kiffin is a few things. One, there's maturity issues. I'm going to talk about it with Tennessee in a minute. But part of why that fan base was so upset, Lane Kiffin was doing goofy stuff. He was faking injury. You know, he had players faking injuries. He had called three timeouts before halftime just to be a jerk. Like, you know, these are real things that you have to consider when you're bringing in Lane Kiffin. I still say that Alabama game, he got in his own head. He he coached his team out of that game two weeks ago in Tuscaloosa. And so those are going to be the pluses and minuses of Lane Kiffin. The only other reason I think he might consider not taking it, uh, one, I mean, I guess he could just love Ole Miss and feel like he's building something there. He is close with Ed Orgeron, and you do wonder if he wants to replace Ed Orgeron there. I don't know. I'm not speculating. It's just a thought that kind of popped into my head uh, as I was preparing all this stuff. Uh, Let's start to kind of get into some of the other candidates here. Those are the two big ones. The third one, another guy that I have talked about a ton, it's James Franklin of Penn State. And I've talked about James Franklin a ton. Um, You know, Penn State lost the other day. But a couple things. One, I think he's built for a bigger stage than Central Pennsylvania. That is no disrespect to the Penn State fans that are listening. I love you guys. You guys are great. Uh, Go Lions. White out. There's nothing like it. At the same time, 
you know, I've said he is the perfect fit for USC because he's got that pizzazz. He's got that L.A. to him. And I think he is one of the few guys that would relish the challenge of competing with Nick Saban. I really, truly believe that. I don't think he'd be afraid. I don't think any of these guys are afraid of Nick Saban. But I do think it will deter a lot of people from taking this job. It's worth noting, by the way, the only reason Coach O got this job was because Tom Herman said, rather than going up against Nick Saban every year, I'm going to go ahead and go to Texas where I think I can, I can win more easily. Now, that didn't happen, but that was part of the equation as well. The things with James Franklin to also consider, you know, that loss, and I said it on Monday's episode last week, that loss to, um, that loss to Iowa changed the dynamics of things at Penn State. I said the only way he's back at Penn State next year, I believe, and I, you know, I still think USC is probably the, the favorite to get him, but I said the only thing that keeps him at Penn State is if he makes the playoff. If you make the playoff, you can't complain. You can't say, I can't build a playoff team here. Um, but you, you know, you, 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 if you're at Penn State and you make the playoff, you can't be leaving in January to go take another coaching job. Well, you lose to Iowa. You still have Ohio State on the schedule in two weeks. You still have Michigan. You still have Michigan State. I don't see the scenario where James Franklin ends up in the playoff. Even if you win all those games, you probably got to beat Iowa again to make the college football playoff. And I do think this might be the year where James Franklin just looks around and says, you know what? I've done all I can. I've hit a glass ceiling. I win 9, 10, 11 games every year, but Ohio State's here, Michigan's here, Iowa's here. Let me go somewhere else where I believe I can go to a program where there is a higher ceiling. There's no doubt that the ceiling of LSU is higher than the ceiling of Penn State, considering, again, LSU has won three national championships under its last three head coaches, three national championships since the turn of the century. Penn State has not won a national championship since, I don't know, uh, sometime when Joe Paterno was there. I'd be lying if I said I'm looking it up really quick, but it's been a long time since Penn State has truly been a national championship contender. Now, it's worth noting. One, he could still make the playoff. Two, also worth noting, he does have the number one recruiting class in the country right now. Now, I, I don't think that's a deal breaker by any means. I think a lot of those kids maybe would consider following him depending on where they're from or what their commitments are, all that kind of stuff. But that is something else to consider with Penn State is, is this the kind of, uh, you know, is this the kind of class that he believes could launch him into, again, that national championship conversation? Let's get to a few other candidates. This segment is going long. I want to get out of here. I want to get some other stuff. Uh, Beyond those three, Jimbo Fisher, Lane Kiffin, James Franklin. How about Joe Brady? I don't think it happens. To be abundantly clear, Joe Brady, of course, was the play. He wasn't the play caller. LSU fans get offended, but he was the brains behind the offense that won the national championship in 2019. Shortly after that national championship run, he goes to the Carolina Panthers as the offensive coordinator and now works with Matt Rule and Sam Darnold. I think if you're LSU, you got to make the call. He's young. He's dynamic. His offense is clearly explosive. And again, um, you know, best year in recent history for LSU. Joe Brady was there. At the same time, everybody who knows Joe Brady says, not really a college guy. Even though he's young, even though he probably could be a dynamic recruiter, he really doesn't want to go into the homes of 16, 17-year-old kids and convince them why they need to come play for him. The other thing with Joe Brady is... If he keeps having success at the NFL level, and we'll see if he does, um, you know, there's going to be some NFL jobs that might want him. You know, the the the, the one I keep hearing is, um, you know, if uh, if say hypothetically, Urban Meyer does not survive 
at the Jacksonville Jaguars. Shout out to Urban Meyer, just got his first NFL win, by the way. If Urban Meyer does not survive with the Jacksonville Jaguars, Joe Brady might be the top choice there. So, Joe Brady, you make the call. I don't believe that it will happen, but it's one to consider. Keep going down the list. Mario Cristobal, another one. We talked about him a lot at USC. He has built Oregon into a power. Um, I know he's his his you know everything's faded a little bit with him over the last few weeks. They beat Ohio State, but they have not been the same since that game. Could have lost to Arizona. Did lose the other day to Stanford. Struggled against Cal on Friday night. So the the bloom is off the rose a little bit. At the same time, again, a few things. One, do you feel like you've kind of hit a ceiling at Oregon? Can you really win a national championship at Oregon? Can you get that many good players at Oregon? What happens at USC if USC hires an elite-level coach? Um, are, is that a school that is now going to be competition for you, not only on the field but in recruiting? So these are all factors with Mario Cristobal as well. For people who don't understand the tie, by the way, Mario Cristobal is from Florida, from Miami, coached under Nick Saban. And so I think the, the pluses and minuses are there. The pluses, you know, he's another guy. I don't think he's afraid of Nick Saban. I think he'd love the challenge of competing with him. But does it really make sense to, to leave an established program like Oregon? That part, I don't know. That part you have to factor in as well because, again, if they win, they're on pace to win their third straight Pac-12 title. You win three straight Pac-12 titles, they're on the door of the playoff conversation right now. If they make the playoff this year, he's definitely not leaving. But even if they don't, if you're building something, is it really worth going somewhere else to completely rebuild from scratch? That is something to watch. Let's wrap on a couple other candidates for this job. I'll just say this. You know, my old buddy Hugh Freeze, friend of the Aaron Torres pod, I don't root for or against anybody, but I've told this story on this podcast before, and I'll say it again. I live not far from the Rose Bowl. I host Fox Sports Radio on, on Saturday nights. Following the game, I had multiple people from LSU that were at the game tell me, all right, it's over with Coach O. It's time to go get Hugh Freeze. It's time to go get Hugh Freeze. It's time to go get Hugh Freeze because here's the thing about Hugh Freeze. First of all, we talked about it when I had him on this podcast. He got to Liberty. They were an FCS program and transitioning to FB, to the FBS level, okay? In year one, they go 8-5 and five and make a bowl game. In year two, last year in COVID, this is what they did. They went 10-1. and one. This year, they're 5-2, and two, obviously, uh, you know, a little bit of a disappointment. But we're talking about a guy that's 15-2, uh, 15-3 in his last 18 games. The guy wins. Here's the other thing with Hugh Freeze that I continue to beat the drum for, and I'm not like, like I, I don't care if he gets the job or not. I'm just telling you straight up. Hugh Freeze, there's only three coaches in college football that have beaten Nick Saban multiple times. Dabo Sweeney, uh, Gus Malzahn, you know Gus Malzahn ain't getting that job, and Hugh Freeze. And so the Hugh Freeze conversation is the same as the Lane Kiffin conversation. If Hugh Freeze can beat Alabama with the type of talent that he had at Ole Miss, imagine what he could do if he could recruit the caliber of players that he could recruit at LSU. I think the other thing, he's been in the SEC. He knows the SEC. You know, some of these guys, um, you know, they don't know what it's like to sit in that big boy seat until it's time to be there. Jimbo Fisher does, Lane Kiffin does, and Hugh Freeze does. He knows what it's like to coach in this league. He knows what it's like to walk into those stadiums, and he has had success doing it, frankly, in a way that outside of maybe Jimbo Fisher, nobody has really had that level of success in the SEC. So Hugh Freeze, I think, is a guy, I will say, I've heard a couple things about 
LSU is dealing with some Title IX issues, which stem from, you know, allegations about, you know, sexual misconduct by some of the players. Uh, Hugh Freeze, I'm not saying he had anything to do with it, but obviously he had NCAA issues in his past. And I know for a fact that that concerns some people at LSU. Again, I'm not saying it's fair, but we know Hugh Freeze had issues with the NCAA dating back uh, to his days at Ole Miss. So that's one to keep an eye on. Let's start to wrap here. A couple other ones. Look, Billy Napier. Billy Napier, head coach at Louisiana. Listen, as I said, uh, you know, Scott Woodward is a big game hunter. I do not believe that Scott Woodward is going to go after a group of five coach, but Billy Napier, last three years, 11 and 3, 10 and 1, and 5 and 1 this year at Louisiana, right down the road. Also worth noting, he is a guy that uh, has turned down at least the, uh, he's interviewed for multiple SEC jobs. But it doesn't seem as though he's interested in taking kind of a second-level one. He's interviewed for South Carolina. He's interviewed for Mississippi State. Uh, but he has, I don't know if he's officially turned them down, but has not seemed to be interested. It appears as though he's waiting for one of those truly elite jobs. Maybe this is the one that he jumps at if the opportunity presents itself. A couple other names. You know, I, I saw uh, somebody, I think it was Bruce Feldman, reported Mel Tucker. Mel Tucker, the head coach in Michigan State. They're 7-0. and um, You know, look. Mel Tucker, it's worth noting, left Colorado after one year. Could he leave Michigan State after two years? I could potentially see it. He was at LSU previously. He has SEC ties. He coached at Georgia under Kirby Smart. He knows that league. The last one I would say, I've had a few people mention it to me, you know, Luke Fickle. Luke Fickle has spent his entire life in, uh, in uh, Ohio except for one year. And you know where he was? He played for the New Orleans Saints. So he's at least somewhat familiar with the area. You know, Luke Fickle, I don't know, man. He does not seem like SEC, you know, he doesn't seem like USC either. But he doesn't seem like SEC to me. But I will say, you know, LSU is one of those jobs. I mean, I don't think he's going to leave Cincinnati for a lot of jobs. But it's one you got to at least consider, right? I mean, when you can win national championships and compete for national championships every year, that feels like a job that you have to at least listen to. So those are the names. I just gave you eight of them. How's that sound? Jimbo Fisher. Lane Kiffin, uh, James Franklin, uh, Joe Brady, Mario Cristobal, Hugh Freeze, Billy Napier, Mel Tucker, and uh, that last one there was who? Who was the last one I just gave you? I forget. I'm already tripping over my Oh, Luke Fickle. Luke Fickle. That's nine names I just gave you. So shout out to your boy. By the way, Mark Stoops I talked about on Friday's show. LSU doesn't make sense to me. Midwest guy. Uh, most of his recruiting has been in the Midwest footprint. He would have to completely change his entire program, how he operates, how he recruits. I do not see that one. All right. That was a lengthy, meaty first segment of the Aratora Sports Podcast. By the way, last little thing on this I do want to say. Uh, I'm going to miss Coach O. I'm going to miss Coach O. Uh, I think he's great for college football. I've said it many times. I think it's the personalities of these guys are what make college football so great. I think he's been great for LSU. I think he feels like LSU, and I'm sad to see him go. Don't know what his future holds. You know, I mean, this is a guy that's now probably going to have $30 million in the bank when it's all said and done after this LSU thing. I don't think he wants to go back and be a position coach. I don't know if he gets another head coaching opportunity. We'll say, by the way, I threw it out there. My alma mater, UConn, is looking for a coach. Uh, I one day hope to be the kind of booster that could convince him uh, for the right price to come to UConn. But uh, Coach O, I wouldn't be surprised if he kind of stays out of the woodwork for a little while. All right, this is what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to talk about, I mean, by the way, 
This insanity of college football. I just spent a half an hour on LSU, have not even gotten to the craziness at Tennessee. Then we'll get to a little Georgia, and we'll get to a little Dan Mullen to wrap, because Dan Mullen, uh, as history shows it, Coach O's last, win, last game as LSU's official head coach was a victory over Florida. So that's really funny. But we'll be right back, and I do want to talk the Tennessee stuff. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. And I do want to switch gears to what I thought was going to be the lead topic of today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. And it's funny because I know I just mentioned a minute ago, but I do host on Fox Sports Radio. Uh, Obviously, I could not have foreseen the Coach O news coming on Saturday night as I was prepping for my show. But even as I was prepping for my show, I'm kind of sitting there saying, okay, like what's the lead topic today? Georgia Rolls. LSU wins. Does Coach O survive another day? As it turns out, he does not. Uh, Dan Mullen, you know, we kind of got to start asking some questions about Dan Mullen. What am I going to lead the show with? Our show starts. We're talking about all these topics. We're talking about Florida. We're talking about Georgia. It gets to be about 10, 10 11, 11 15. And we're still like, what is really like, what, what are we going to hit on? What are we going to go after tonight? And then we all know what happened next. At no- in Knoxville, Neyland Stadium, just insanity in the streets of Knoxville on Saturday night. And so let's get into it. Let's break it all down. Because as I said, I do think there are two sides to this story. I only think one is getting told. I promise I'm not going to excuse the behavior of Tennessee fans. But I do think there's some interesting things about this conversation that are not happening. Really quickly, let's just give you the basics of how we got to the point where we had water bottles and golf balls and mustard bottles flying in the stands of Neyland Stadium. I think most of you know all the details, but for those of you who were not in front of a TV Saturday night, here are some quick details on what happened at Neyland Stadium. First of all, uh, just the the atmosphere outside of the negativity at the end, it was electric, right? It was college football. It was SEC football with good reason. Lane Kiffin, the one-time Tennessee head coach, he left under controversial circumstances after one year. He's back in town. The fan base is fired up. And the fan base is fired up not really just because Lane Kiffin is back, but also because of the fact that Tennessee football is starting to play well. They were 4-2 uh, and two coming into the game. They had two really good wins in the SEC, one over Missouri, one over South Carolina. So the fan base is starting to feel good. There's a lot of positivity back with the fan base. On top of that, uh, we had our first sellout at Neyland Stadium since 2017 to see Lane Kiffin and to hopefully defeat Lane Kiffin. Now where it gets interesting, and let's get into how we got to craziness at Neyland Stadium. Um, you know, throughout the game, Ole Miss jumps up, big lead, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And it gets late in the game. Tennessee is driving. Obviously, they are down 31 to 26 at this point. Late in the game, about a minute, minute and a half to go. They're driving. They get set up with a fourth and super long. Fourth and 24, I think is what it was. Fourth and 24, throw the ball, uh, trying for a first down. Hendon Hooker hits his wide receiver over the middle. He stretches out. It appears as though it's a first down, and we are going to get Tennessee with a chance to potentially win this game with under a minute to go. New life, fourth and 20-plus. They get their opportunity, first down, and then the refs call it short. And then the refs go to replay and call it short. And it was at that point that craziness happened. And you could even see, I was obviously on social media hosting my radio show. I could not hear the TV monitors, but I'm on social media and I can see people that are either watching the game, at the game, Tennessee beat writers that I follow saying, oh boy, 
for, they're saying two things, really. One, this replay system is ridiculous, and this review system and the spotting system is ridiculous. How is it 2021, and we have an old guy uh, running up the sidelines guesstimating where the ball is? But then, two, it's like, oh, th- this is gonna, th- there's going to be a lot of booze. Now, what happened was nobody could have anticipated that craziness broke out after the refs initially made the call uh, the fourth down is not converted. It is Ole Miss ball. And it's worth noting, by the way, there was still a minute left and Tennessee had all its timeouts. So there was a possibility that Tennessee could get the ball back and still win this game. But before that could even happen, that is when the all the craziness and all hell broke loose. You get you start with booze, yelling and screaming. We all know what happens from there. Fans start throwing water bottles. Someone threw a mustard bottle, which was an interesting one to me. And then obviously, look, uh, somebody threw a golf ball that nearly hit Lane Kiffin. And so the game is stopped. Um, You know, uh, the students are pulled from the student section. I'm not saying it was just students who were throwing stuff, but students were pulled from the student section. The band actually had to be removed from the field because it was not deemed safe for them to be there. The cheerleaders had to be removed from the field because it was deemed that it was not safe for them to be there. And it's just a really, really, really ugly scene overall. The game is delayed 20, 25, 30 minutes, whatever it ends up being. And we still got to finish the game. Because that was the crazy part uh, about all of it, was as I just said, Tennessee is down five, Ole Miss is going to get the ball back, but Tennessee has all three timeouts, and that's exactly what happened. After the craziness, after the water bottles, and again, it's worth mentioning, it was just insanity. I mean, Lane Kiffin's uh, you know, circling up with the refs, uh, the cheerleaders have to be removed from the field, the band has to be removed from the field. But when the game finally gets back on, the crazy part was it went exactly as about what we expected. Tennessee uses all three timeouts. They get the ball back. Their starting quarterback, Hennon Hooker, takes off for a run. He gets tackled from behind. He gets knocked out of the game. Um, and Joe Milton comes in, and Joe Milton does Joe Milton stuff, which is basically uh, runs out of bounds on the final play of the game rather than even trying to throw it into the end zone, and Tennessee ends up losing. Of course, the story isn't really about Tennessee losing, though. It is about the, the you know, near riot. I don't know if near riot is the right word, but just the ugly, ugly, ugly scene uh, in Knoxville. And so I want to get into that now because I do want to look at this from both sides because I do think there are two sides and I do think there are two sides worth discussing in all of this. And it is not to excuse Tennessee fans. It's not to say what that what they did was acceptable. And let me just start by saying this. okay? let me just start by saying this is there is no excuse to throw things on the field uh, court ice anything you cannot throw things on the ice on the field on the court on a goal you you cannot throw things at people playing a sport you cannot do it as I said Lane Kiffin almost nearly if he did not get hit with a golf ball that could have really hurt somebody and we all know it goes without saying you cannot throw things on the field of play Everybody knows that. Everybody understands that. I talked about it dating back four or five months with Kyrie Irving in the NBA playoffs. At the same time, I do think there's another side to this that the media is not presenting, and it is the context that led up to this decision. Because I do think it is typical media, typical trying to tell everybody how important they are and you know, they, they, you know, how beneath them the fans are, and, and I did not see it this way. And I do think there was a lot of context that was left out when the media discussed this. Tennessee fans are evil. Tennessee fans are awful. Tennessee fans are terrible. College football fans are terrible. And I think it's honestly a lot more layer than that. 
So let's get into some of the context. Let's talk about it. And I do think the full story of what happened matters because it wasn't just one call on one play to win the game. First of all, as I said, you have a very unique setup where your former head coach, who the fan base reviles, the fan base hates, is back in town. And as I said on Friday's show, um, you know, he's back in town and it's a unique deal because the team is playing well. He had come back as Alabama's offensive coordinator at some points. But at that point, I think every Tennessee fan kind of realized, you know what? We're not going to beat Alabama. We're bad. They're really good. Whatever. Who cares? He's our former coach. Whatever. But now you have him coming back. You have him as a head coach of a very successful program, and you yourselves are ascending. And so the fan base is already fired up, already excited because of the fact, hey, this is our chance. This guy walked out on us, and we have not been the same since, and we can reverse that momentum by beating him here at Neyland Stadium on a Saturday night in Knoxville. Beyond that, what I would also say, I am not victim-blaming here, but Lane Kiffin played a role in this as well, okay? A couple things. First of all, and I, and I talked to some people that were at the stadium that night that said this was a factor. I mean, first of all, uh, Lane Kiffin, we all know the big topic in college football right now are these fake injuries. For people who do not know what I'm talking about, a lot of teams, when you play these tempo-based teams that want to play fast, play really fast, play really fast, play really fast, play really fast, run plays as quick as possible, what teams are now doing to negate that is have players fake injuries on the field uh, to basically slow down that team from running plays. Sam Pittman essentially accused Ole Miss of doing this last week when they played Arkansas. James Franklin uh, was accused, uh, Penn State was accused by Iowa of doing this. And so this is a big topic in college football right now. I can tell you definitively, people in the stands in Neyland Stadium and media who covered it, unbiased media who have no interest, don't care whether Ole Miss wins, whether Tennessee wins, said it was bad. Like Lane Kiffin was egging everybody on. Lane Kiffin had guys falling like they got shot. They're, you know, they, they get back, they're walking back to the huddle, and they fall down like they got shot to slow down the Tennessee tempo and the Tennessee offense. You can argue it, you can debate it. That was the vibe and energy in the stands was that Ole Miss was faking injuries to slow down Tennessee. Not saying that excuses throwing water bottles and mustard bottles and golf balls onto the field, but that played a role in this. I would also mention Lane Kiffin, three timeouts before the end of the first half to ice a kicker. Uh, I guess that's coaching strategy. I don't know how often you see that in the first half of a regular season football game. Could be completely wrong. I don't see it often. So let's not act like Lane Kiffin did not play a role in all this. And then ultimately, that last call, that last spot was again the, um, you know, was again basically the, 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 the end product of a night of frustration where the fans felt like they're getting screwed all night, Lane Kiffin screwing them over, Lane Kiffin's faking injuries, and that is where all the insanity came from. And so again, to be abundantly clear, I am not excusing Lane Kiffin, or I'm not excusing Tennessee fans' behavior, but I do think there's a context that comes with this, and I do think part of this falls on poor refereeing and part of this falls on Lane Kiffin. I mentioned it just a minute ago. This reminds me a ton of the Kyrie Irving situation in the NBA playoffs last spring. If you remember, I talked about it on this show. I don't usually talk about NBA, but I'll be honest, I had nothing else to talk about that day. I vividly remember. Um, but I bring it up only because, you know, Kyrie Irving, there was this incident in Boston. Kyrie Irving had played in Boston 
Boston loses to the Brooklyn Nets, and fans, uh, you know, fans are booing, fans are this, fans are that, and one fan throws a water bottle at Kyrie Irving, and everybody freaked out. Everybody over-exaggerated. Everybody act like somebody pulled out a, a weapon and tried to attack him, and it was an empty water bottle that grazed him, um, and people were acting like, uh, you know, we, we had a, a, a violent crime committed. And I said, look, and I said this at the time, and I defended Boston fans, and I will defend Tennessee fans here too. You can say that you can never throw any – like, let's just get it out of the way. Right? There are some things in life you cannot do, okay? Like, you can't drive 150 miles per hour in a school zone. You can, but there are real-life consequences to that, okay? Um, and it's the same, you know, throwing stuff onto the field of play or the court of play in a stadium. You cannot do it. It's never acceptable. But at the same time, let's not act dating back to the Kyrie Irving situation like Kyrie Irving did not play a role in that. I talked about it on the show the next day. You had a situation where coming back, Kyrie Irving had played in Boston, played for the team, bailed on them. And then a week before the series started, Kyrie Irving called the entire city of Boston racist. Kyrie Irving went up and said, you know, there's subtle racism there. Of course, the media, nobody doing their job, did not press him on it, did not ask for examples of it. And so Kyrie Irving goes to Boston. The fan base already doesn't like him. They call the whole he calls the whole fan base racism. And then on the way out of the arena, he stomps his foot on the logo. So, of course, fans are going to be mad. And, of course, in that case, one fan acted stupid and threw a water bottle onto the court of play that nearly hit or did hit Kyrie Irving that night in Boston. And I said it on the show the next day. I'm not excusing the behavior. What I am saying, though, is let's not act like Kyrie Irving played no role in this, and let's not act dating back to Tennessee like the only thing that happened was one bad call and these fans overreacted and they're crazy and they're this and they're that. Lane Kiffin played a role in this. The refs played a role in this, and I am not excusing their behavior, but let's call a spade a spade, and let's say that other, you know, other things contributed to it as well. My final thought on this, and then we'll get to some actual football, because I do want to talk a little Georgia. I do want to talk a little Dan Mullen. I do want to talk a little Coach O. You know, my final thought on this is pretty straightforward. It's just that, you know, when it comes to this situation at Tennessee, um, you know, I saw a lot of other fans, like, thumbing you know it's one thing for the idiot media the media doesn't know jack okay and I don't think there's a bigger disconnect between fans of the sport of college football and the media that cover them than college football itself but I saw a lot of other fans getting on their 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 high horse about uh you know look at Tennessee fans this is how who they are this is how they act they should never do that and what I would just say is this one this is not the first time a rowdy crowd has acted completely out of control it happens in European soccer. It happens in South America. It happens in other college football, college basketball stadiums. Uh, by the way, Tennessee fans were sharing when they played at Ole Miss a few months, a few years ago, uh, and they, uh, you know, they had stuff thrown at their basketball team. We've seen it in the NFL. People were throwing batteries in Philadelphia. I'm not excusing the behavior, but let's not act like this is the first time this this has happened, and let's not act like some that that most fan bases don't have some bad apples that don't act like this in the heat of the moment. And that's really the last part that really strikes me about this Tennessee fan. I do not, this, this is Tennessee situation, I do not like how everyone is painting all Tennessee fans with a, a broad brush. They're all evil. They're all terrible. They're all angry. They all throw in this and that and whatever. Here's the truth. It was a bad scene in Knoxville. At the same time, 
There was 100,000 people in that stadium, 102,000 to be exact. Let's take a guess. Let's take an overly uh, conservative guess at how many uh, people were actually involved with throwing crap on the field. What do you think? Let's say 1,000 people. Let's say 1,000 people had the guts knowing that if they get caught, they're probably going to get arrested, have their tickets revoked, whatever. Let's say 1,000 people. Let's say 1,000 people are guilty of throwing stuff on the field. You know what that means? That means that 99% of the people in the stadium, over 100,000 people, were not acting like idiots, were not being stupid, were not doing the stuff that got so many people in trouble. So look, I, I, I want to get off this topic. I don't want to paint, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on it. But what I just want to say is this. Let's stop painting all Tennessee fans as evil, as overzealous, as whatever, as this or that. Uh, if there was a thousand bad apples, and I think it's probably closer to a couple hundred, that's still 99% of the audience in Knoxville, 99% of the crowd in Knoxville was acting right and doing right. Uh, and I don't want to paint all Tennessee fans with a broad brush. But we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. As I record here on Sunday afternoon, uh, there has been no official word of what will happen from the SEC office. We await that. Uh, obviously, I think some kind of major fine will be coming, but uh, a very interesting story at Tennessee. All right, this is what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I do want to come back, and we will wrap on a couple other topics from Saturday in college football. We will talk a little bit about Georgia steamrolling another really good opponent. No knock on Kentucky. I thought Kentucky actually played them well. Uh, we'll talk about who's number two in college football right now, which I think is a really interesting conversation. And we will wrap our old buddy Dan Mullen. Is he getting a little bit of a pass right now? Stay tuned. All right, everybody. I am back. For the final time today, good to be back, good to be back, and I do want to wrap on a couple things, and it's really interesting because I, I do think for the most part, uh, one, I think it's time to talk a little actual on-the-field stuff because we really have not hit on a ton of on-the-field conversations from college football this weekend. Obviously, Coach O takes center stage. Obviously, from there on top of that, there is what is going on with Tennessee and what the deal is there and what does it all mean. So let's talk about some on-the-field things, and it really was kind of from a results perspective a pretty quiet weekend in college football not a ton happened I think to me the two most interesting things kind of coincide with each other right one Georgia absolutely dominates another opponent on Saturday and another really good opponent in Kentucky two Iowa loses um, on the they're actually at home to Purdue and so I don't think Iowa, anyone necessarily thought Iowa was the second best team in college football. They were deserving of that number two spot. But now that Georgia has clearly established itself as number one, I want to talk a little bit about that Kentucky game. But I also want to ask the question, who is the second best team in college football and who actually matches up best with Georgia? Now, in terms of Georgia, let me say this. Um, you guys know about me. I don't love kind of jumping on preconceived narratives. I mean, you can argue with me about a lot of things. You can dislike me. But one thing you know, when I come on, when I turn on this microphone, I believe what I say. I believe what is coming out of my mouth. And so there have been times throughout the year where there has been a narrative that I did not necessarily believe. And then there have been narratives like last week that I talked myself into, even though I ultimately did not believe them. The narrative last week that I talked about on this show was, Everybody said coming out of the weekend where Georgia beat Arkansas and where Alabama beat Ole Miss, oh my goodness, Alabama-Georgia, definitively the two best teams in the country. 
I didn't believe it, but I bought into it. I convinced myself. So when Alabama lost and the conversation immediately shifted to Georgia is definitively the number one team in the country, I was hesitant. I was like, I know they're undefeated. They're a deserving number one team in the country. But are we positive? Are we positive that they are absolutely the unquestioned best team in college football? Well, let me tell you what. After Saturday, after what they did to Kentucky, after how they took care of a really good Kentucky team, I think I'm finally ready to say Georgia is unquestionably the best team in college football. And so now the question becomes, who's number two and who matches up with them best? And first of all, when it comes to narratives, you all know if there's anybody that wants Georgia to be the definitive unquestioned best team in college football, you already know it's me. Uh, And you know why? It's because I picked Georgia to win the national championship. How about my dogs? I love my dogs. But coming out of last weekend, even after they took care of Auburn, even after they took care of Arkansas the week before, I kept trying to sell myself that, well, you know, they're not complete. They don't really throw the ball that well. What happens if this? What happens with that? Well, I do think after the Kentucky game, I don't think it's really a debate anymore. I think the, the conversation is over right now, week seven, October 17th as I record here, they are the unquestioned best team in the country. And the reason why is really simple. They played another really good team, the fourth team in the top 10 that they've played, or the top 20 that they've played this season at the time that they played them, and they absolutely destroyed Kentucky. I actually thought Kentucky played Georgia harder than anybody this year, dating back to that Clemson game. And you start to look at it and you start to say, ah, Georgia, kind of flat, kind of this, didn't play their A game. That was my takeaway when I was watching the game. I said, Georgia was really good. I don't feel like they played their A game. And then I looked at the box score. They finished with 416 yards of total offense. They held Kentucky under 250 yards of total offense. They averaged six yards per carry against a really good Kentucky defense. They held Kentucky's run game to 1.9 yards per rush. And I sat there and said, wait a second now. We all know what Mark Stoops did with five seconds left. He called a timeout to punch a touchdown into the end zone. And so it kind of hit me. If Kentucky, the second best team in the SEC East, probably one of the top 8 to 10 to 12 teams nationally, if they needed to call time out with five seconds left to score a touchdown to keep it from being a four-possession game, there is no doubt that Georgia is the best team in the country. It's not even a debate anymore. It's not even a question. So now the question to me that becomes interesting, who is number two? And who is going to give Georgia the most competition when they ultimately meet up with Georgia, whether it's in the SEC championship game or the college football playoff? And I do believe at this point it's hard to envision a scenario where I don't see Georgia in the college football playoff, even if they were to somehow lose in the SEC championship game, likely to Alabama as an undefeated or one loss team. uh, I believe that they would still be in the college football playoff. But the question becomes, who's number two? How do you beat Georgia? And what I would say is, if you are looking for a saving grace, it's this. It is that I believe right now, the gap between Georgia and whoever the second best team in the country is as big as it is going to be. That is not not a knock on Georgia. That is not a criticism of Georgia. But it is the reality of this. Georgia is a veteran team. They bring back mostly everybody from last year. Now, they have a banged-up quarterback, but at this point, I don't know if JT Daniels is going to come back. And so until JT Daniels comes back, I can't project how good they could be with him because he never seems to be on the field. But I bring it up because of this fact. There are a lot of teams in college football that are super young that appear to be getting healthy and experienced and confident 
all at the same time. And so as those teams rise, I think Georgia's going to stay at this elite level, but I do think teams are going to start to rise to their level throughout the course of the season. It kind of reminds me in a lot of ways of college basketball, right? You know, you have these great teams filled with all these veterans and blah, 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 and this and that, and then you know what happens. The Kentuckys, the Dukes, the whoever in, in a given year, Kansas, Tennessee, Arizona, they start to get experienced, they start to get confident, and then all of a sudden they might be a 2-3-4 seed come March, but you're like, man, I don't want Kentucky in my bracket. I don't want uh, Kansas in my bracket because they only get better as the season goes on and they get more confident. And so when I look at who's number two, I'll tell you this, Cincinnati's ranked number two in the polls. We'll get to them in a minute. I don't believe they're the second best team in the country. There's a team coming on at number two that I believe might be the second best team in the country, and it is a team that I absolutely crushed for about four or five weeks this season. But the one thing about me, I'm willing to pivot. I'm willing to change my opinion as we get new information. And I really like the Oklahoma Sooners. I really do. I really like Oklahoma, and let me tell you why. And if you want to criticize and you want to say, Torres, you guys in the media sell us every single year on a team like Oklahoma, then they get to the playoff, then they get destroyed by an SEC team, I can't argue with you. I know what the history says. But the history also says this. Oklahoma historically has not been good on defense. They've completely relied on their offense. And when they get to the uh, uh, college football playoff, they face these really dynamic offensive teams with really great defenses as well. So all of a sudden, they can't simply outscore teams like they've done in the Big 12, but they also can't stop them either. That's what happened against LSU in the playoff in 2019, that historic offense. Obviously, Joe Brady, Joe Burrow, Coach O, we just talked about them, what, 30 minutes ago? And then also in Al against Alabama in 2018 when Kyler Murray went up against Tua Tonga Viola. They just didn't have enough guys, couldn't make enough stops, whatever. Well, one... I do think the defense is improved this year. Now, it's, it, it's starting to regress a little bit. I'd start to be worried a little bit if I was an Oklahoma fan because they did give up a lot of yards uh, on Saturday to TCU, and they certainly gave up a lot of yards and a lot of points to Texas. But what I would also say about Oklahoma is this. If you have not paid attention since they put Caleb Williams into the starting lineup, they are a completely different team, and I believe that they are now finally starting to hit their ceiling as a college football playoff contender and what I believe to be a national championship contender. Now, you can sit there and say, can they really win a national championship with a true freshman, Caleb Williams, under center? What I would say is Trevor Lawrence did it three years ago at uh, Clemson. We've seen other freshmen step in. Tua Tonga Viola stepped into a national championship game and played well. So why can't Caleb Williams do that at Oklahoma? And oh, by the way, why can't, on top of that, Oklahoma continue to get better as the season goes on, because I'm telling you right now, they are a completely different offense with him under center. Here is what their offense did in the three games before Caleb Williams took over as starting quarterback. 23 points against Nebraska, 16 points against West Virginia, 37 points against Kansas State. He took over at halftime of the Texas game. They put up 35 points in the second half. They put up 52 points against TCU on Saturday night. And by the way, that included four Caleb Williams over uh, th almost 300 yards passing in that game, four touchdowns, 13 yards per completion. And he also had a touchdown run of 45 plus yards. This kid's a difference maker. This kid's an X factor. We talked about Spencer Rattler on the last show. I feel bad with what his future holds. Um, but Caleb Williams is the guy. And this offense is different with them. And I am just telling you, 
This team looks completely different with him in the lineup. They are going to be a completely different team, and I think they're scary going forward. What I would also say is this. I found it really interesting. Caleb Williams played the entire game on Saturday night, which means that I thought that they were going to split reps with Spencer Rattler. Instead, it's the opposite. Caleb Williams is the guy going forward, and now it's just a question of how long does Spencer Rattler stay at Oklahoma uh, before potentially leaving that school because he is not going to regain that starting spot anytime soon. Uh, beyond Oklahoma, who else do I believe could compete with Georgia? Because again, to beat Georgia, and I probably should have even said this earlier, to beat Georgia, you are going to have to be able to score points and get just enough defensive stops because Georgia's offense is elite in the run game. They have an elite defense. Can he score enough points and can he make enough stops in the pass game? And that is something, by the way, that we still have to see from Georgia. Like I said, we have not seen them against a super explosive offense, and I do think that's going to come into play. Uh, remember, last year, Stetson Bennett, the guy who's the starting quarterback now, he was the starting quarterback last year. Then they went up against Alabama, couldn't score enough points, went up against Florida, couldn't score enough points, and so that is something that we need to consider going forward. So who else besides Oklahoma? I think Ohio State starting to make, make moves in the Big Ten. Now, Ohio State's been a little bit off the radar since that Oregon win, but the thing about Ohio State is what I just said a minute ago about Oklahoma. They're starting to get better as the season goes on. Now, things are going to be difficult. They have Penn State in two weeks at home. And in the final three weeks, how about this? They have three teams that are all ranked in the top 25. I don't think any of us saw them coming ranked in the top 25. Final three weeks, they have Purdue. Yes, Purdue is ranked in the top 25 after beating Iowa. They have Michigan State, and they have Michigan. And so the Michigan game is on the road. And so Ohio State by no means has an easy schedule from here on out. I would also say they do play Nebraska. Nebraska is up and down, hot and cold. But when Nebraska is hot, Nebraska is scary. So you got five pretty tough games to end the season. Penn State at Nebraska, Purdue, Michigan State at Michigan. And what I would also say on top of that is even if you win, you still got to play in the Big Ten Championship game. And what I would also say on top of that, your margin for error is that much smaller because you already have a loss. Oklahoma could take a bad L somewhere, still make the playoff and compete with Georgia. Ohio State takes another L, they're probably not in the playoff. And so I bring all this up to say Ohio State, definitely there's some questions, but I think that offense is coming together nicely in a way that if they get in with Georgia, maybe they can compete with them. Last three games for Ohio State, 59-7 to against Akron, 52-13 to against Rutgers, 66-17 to against Maryland. And so, yes, they're averaging 60 points over their last three. No, they're not going to put up 60 on Georgia in a college football playoff game. But can they score enough? Can they do enough to keep up with Georgia? I think maybe they can. The final obvious team, I'll just say it, Alabama. And, you know, I sold my Alabama stock after that game with uh, – Whoever it was, uh, it was uh, who they lose to, Texas A&M a few days ago. But what I would say about Alabama, first of all, they did what they had to do on Saturday. They go on the road, tough SEC environment, and you start to sit there and say, you know, Alabama, how good are they? Are they really that good? Well, they looked awesome against Mississippi State. Mississippi State has a real defense. Alabama went up and down the field against them as much as they wanted to, finished with another game with over 500 yards of total offense. You know, you look at the offensive charts now. You know, we think back to last year with Steve Sarkeesian, how great that offense was. I mean, Alabama is averaging almost 500 yards per game this season after seven games. It's not as though this offense has taken this incredible step back without Mac Jones, uh, Najee Harris, all that. They haven't been as productive, as efficient, but 
they're still a really good offense. And what I would say is the defense looked good for a single night. Now, you got to be better over the course of a season. People aren't happy with Pete Golding, the defensive coordinator. But when you look at Alabama against Mississippi State, they gave up uh, a lot of passing yards, but it was only because Mississippi State threw the ball 55 times. Mississippi State averaged under six yards per completion. Alabama kept everything in front of them. And then from there also held Mississippi State to negative one yard rushing. So great job overall by Alabama. We'll see if they continue to get better. And the other thing that's worth noting about Alabama, you know, a, a good chunk of the hard part of their schedule is done. They get Tennessee at home this week, then a bye. LSU, we don't know what we're going to get from them. New Mexico State, Arkansas, we'll see. They've been hot and cold all year. And then at Auburn to end the season. They could really be hitting a groove by the time they play Georgia in a potential SEC championship game. I'm trying to think of anybody else that I think could compete with Georgia. Listen, Cincinnati's a good story. They're fun. They play real defense. I don't think they can score on Georgia. Same with Michigan. Same with Penn State. Same with Iowa. Those are the teams, if I was Georgia, I'd be afraid of. Oklahoma, they're cruising right now. Ohio State and Alabama. All right, last little topic before we get out of here. And uh, what a show it's been, by the way. Uh, you know, about 10 o'clock Eastern time on Saturday night, I had absolutely no idea where we were going to go with this show. Uh, then the Lane Kiffin, uh, Tennessee stuff happens. Then LSU, let's go of Coach O. And so with that, let's kind of bring this show full circle. We started with Coach O being let go after beating Florida. But the one thing we haven't really talked about is the Florida side of things, where for the second time in two years, Florida is a double-digit favorite against LSU. And for the second time in two years, Florida loses as a double-digit favorite to LSU. It continues, by the way, a disturbing trend if you're a Florida fan with Dan Mullen. And I'm just going to tell you this. I'm not saying Dan Mullen's on the hot seat. I'm not saying he's getting canned tomorrow. I'm not even saying even if disaster strikes that he'll be gone this year. But what I am saying is a guy that we all think of as this really kind of really brilliant, smart, talented coach, I'm going to throw you some stats at you at a minute that are going to blow your mind. And I think we're it's time to start asking at least some questions, giving Dan Mullen a little bit of the side eye here. And I know what a lot of you are thinking. Torres, you are crazy. You say a lot of dumb stuff on this show, but this takes the cake. Dan Mullen's been great at Florida. And what I would say is I kind of agree. First year he comes in, Jim McElwain is there. First of all, he was great at Mississippi State, right? I mean, you know, what he did at Mississippi State, 10 wins in 2014, 9 wins in 2015. Uh, you know, they get he gets him to number one in the country with Dak Prescott. What he did was incredible. And when he took the Florida job, he elevated the program. The program had struggled under Jim McElwain. It had taken a step back. He comes in first year, 10-3, and three, goes to the Peach Bowl, beats Michigan. So year one, 10 wins, beats Michigan, um, second in the SEC East. Just, you know, good st good vibes, good energy coming out of that program in year one. Second year, even better. 11-2, that was 2019, the year that Joe Burrow was at LSU. Only loss to LSU and to Georgia. They finished number one and number five nationally in the country. They go to the Orange Bowl, beat Virginia. Even last year. Most of the season, they were in that college football playoff conversation. Listen, I do this show three times a week, every week, uh, seemingly forever. And I can tell you definitively, I have a segment online that is literally like from YouTube last year that's literally like Florida is the college football playoff contender that nobody's talking about. And so it had never really struck me that Dan Mullen has been anything other than awesome 
at uh, Florida over the course of his career. Now, they struggled down the stretch last year. They lose in the SEC championship game to Alabama. They lose in the Cotton Bowl when all their players opt out against Oklahoma. But again, it had never hit me that, you know, anything other than Dan Mullen is an awesome football coach. But what I will tell you is about two weeks ago when Kentucky beat Florida, I started to hear some grumblings from college football fans. And I'll give college football fans credit. You guys are crazy. You guys all want your teams to win national championships. But you usually do not miss when it comes to coaches. I had LSU fans a year ago telling me something's not right at LSU. I can't tell you what. I can't tell you how. I can't. This team is not right. Well, turns out they were not right. I mean, I remember back to when Will Muschamp was at Florida, and everyone said, you got to give him another year. They gave him another year. He was terrible. Lane Kiffin at USC, got to give him another year. Give him another year. He was terrible. College football fans always know. And after Florida lost to Kentucky, it was the first time that I kind of heard, Dan Mullen, I'm not saying. I'm just saying. And even at that time, I kind of sat back as a commentator, as an observer of the sport, and I said, man, these college football fans are crazy. But then a funny thing happened. Uh, Florida lost to LSU over the weekend. And when they did, I kind of looked at Dan Mullen's resume over the last 10 games or so. His resume is terrible over the last 10 games. All right, so I'm going to throw some stats out at you. They are going to absolutely blow your mind. I guarantee you, your mind will, will be blown when I give you these stats. Okay, first of all, in Dan Mullen's last 10 games as Florida's head coach, Florida is 4-6 and six overall. 4-6. and six. Now again, two of those losses are to Bama. One in the SEC championship game. One is in the Cotton Bowl when all his best players opted out. He gets a pass for some of them. But, 4-6 and six in his last 10. 0-3 to end this season, uh, last season. 4-3 and three this season. Here are some of the losses. Losses a 24-point favorite at home to LSU last year. Lost outright. That was the game where the kid threw the shoe. Penalty. LSU kicks the field goal to win the game. They lost earlier this year at Kentucky. Now, Kentucky might be a better team. As an 8.5-point favorite. Over a touchdown favorite. They lost at LSU on Saturday as an 11-point favorite. So as a, a touchdown favorite or more, they have lost three times in the last calendar year. As a touchdown favorite, they lost outright. So they're expected to win by at least a touchdown. They lose outright. On top of that, here is his, the, the four wins that he has. So he's four and six overall in his last 10. Here are his four wins that he has. Florida Atlantic, South Florida, Tennessee, Vanderbilt. Those are Dan Mullen's four wins in his last 10 games. Florida Atlantic, South Florida, Tennessee, Vanderbilt. Those are his only wins. Other than that, 0-2 against LSU, 0-2 against Alabama, uh, 0-1 against uh, Oklahoma, 0-1 against Kentucky. So that is, is that all six games right there? That's six games right there. That's not getting the job done. I'll even take it one step further. Somebody tweeted this out. I thought it was really good. Here's Dan Mullen's record against Nick Saban. He's 0-2. Against Kirby Smart, he's 1-2. Against Coach O, he is now 1-3. Against Jimbo Fisher, he is now 0-1. So in games featuring his biggest SEC rivals and the other two best coaches in the SEC right now, which are probably Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban, he is 2-8 overall. So think about that for a second. 4-6 in his last 10, only four wins, South Florida, Florida Atlantic, Vandy, Tennessee. 2-8 against Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher, Coach O, and Kirby Smart. That ain't getting the job done. And so I think what a lot of people are starting to ask about Dan Mullen, is he turning 
Mississippi State, is he turning Florida into what Mississippi State was when he was there only with cooler uniforms and the gator chop? Is that what he's doing? Because it kind of feels like that's what he's doing. Think about it. What are they right now? What was Mississippi State under Dan Mullen? Beat all the teams you're supposed to do. You can't beat the teams with more talent than you. What is Florida doing? The teams that have more talent to them, they're not beating them. They're not beating Florida. They're not beating Georgia. They're not beating LSU, which shouldn't be losing to Florida under any circumstances. They're not beating Alabama. They're not beating Texas A&M. And nobody expects you to win all of those games, but you do have to win some of them. And so I'm just telling you, it's going to be an interesting few weeks for Dan Mullen. Now, the nice part about it is, yes, you have Georgia after the bye, but you have some wins built into the schedule. You're 4-3 and three right now. You play Georgia after the bye. We knew it was going to be a down year. You get Missouri at Tennessee, Charleston Southern. Uh, excuse me, I, I'm looking at the wrong schedule here. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let's do that again. You play Georgia. You play at South Carolina, Samford, at Missouri, Florida State. I'm just going to tell you, you got to win those final four. Now, those are wins that he should have. Missouri stinks. South Carolina stinks. Florida State's getting better, but they stink. Eight and four isn't that bad, especially if you consider that they'll probably be four and four, and four after the Georgia game. Best way to get the, the pressure off is you beat Georgia. But even if you don't, great way to get pressure off is to win those last four. So again, I'm not saying he's on the hot seat, but I am saying the tide is starting to turn and people are starting to ask questions. And he does have a few things working against him. One, the defense is terrible. Todd Grantham, we all know the story. He's been around forever, but he's not getting the job done. Fans want him out. I don't know what is going to happen, but Dan Mullen, uh, it does not seem as though is in any rush to fire his defensive coordinator, even though he's not getting the job done. On top of that, <laughs> we saw the quarterback situation. Uh, Emory Jones, we love him. I respect that Dan Mullen's fighting for his older guy, but Anthony Richardson came in on Saturday and completely sparked that team against LSU. And finally, I'd say this with Dan Mullen. He has kind of this reputation as being kind of the offensive guru, play caller, guru, savant kind of guy. What he is not known as is what he is not known as is a recruiter. And right now, I think Florida fans are starting to use that against him. It's like, okay, dude, you want to be the X's and O's guy, that's fine. But you gotta go out X's and O's somebody that is supposed to be on your level. Because Jimbo knows the X's and O's and he recruits. Nick Saban knows the X's and O's and he recruits. Kirby Smart definitely recruits and knows enough about X's and O's to beat your butt pretty much every year. And so I only bring it up to just say this. Again, Dan Mullen is not on the hot seat, and it is worth noting, last year they did beat Georgia. And who knows, maybe they beat Georgia this year too. It's also worth noting, by the way, um, that I will say, you know, they were at 1.8-1 last season, and so it's not as though whatever. You get the point that I'm trying to make. All I'm trying to say is, Dan Mullen, you got to start beating some teams that you're not supposed to. You cannot lose to LSU as a 11.5 point favorite as they were on Saturday. Florida loses. Dan Mullen, I think we're starting to feel a little bit of heat for the first time as his tenure as the Florida head coach. All right. As always, I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. What a show. I cannot believe that Coach O is no longer the head coach, and I cannot believe what happened at Tennessee, and I cannot believe some of that stuff I just told you about Dan Mullen. But it's time for me to get out of here. Before we get out, make sure you're subscribed. Aaron Torres Podcast, iTunes, Spotify, the Podcast Addict app, uh, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Make sure to rate and review the show 
go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Leave a little review on the page. It really does help. A lot of you are listening to this show on a week-to-week basis. If you could throw up a few reviews, that would really help. If you like college football, by the way, the college football betting show with Aaron Torres, if you're throwing down a few bucks that game, that show is obviously available as well. So we got that going for us. A lot of good stuff. All my writing, Aaron Torres online. Make sure you're checking that out a few times a day. Uh, We will have coverage of the LSU coaching search wall-to-wall, including some of the candidates that I wrote about, that I talked about a minute ago. But that's it. I want to thank you guys for listening. I want to get out of here. Shout out to Torek Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back on Wednesday. And I cannot even imagine what we will be talking about by that point in the week on the Aaron Torres podcast. Thank you guys. Thank you guys again for just an unbelievable month, unbelievable several months of support. The show keeps growing. Cannot do it without you. Shout out, Coach Joe. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.